Is this on? It is my pleasure to introduce Todd Miller for uh, Cancer Center Grand Rounds today. Um, let's get a disclaimer uh, over with right now. So for the conflict of interest statement, uh, Todd does have financial interest that he has not shared with me. Um, he has grant support from Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Um, this has been reviewed by Alan Hartford, uh, our course director for Grand Rounds and Resolved. So. Um, has uh, been validated through the content of the presentation, and he does intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device, um, but he is not receiving direct payment from a commercial entity with respect to this. So there is your big disclaimer, uh, and for CME credit, you can find that outside uh, after the presentation. On to Todd. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, introduce him and to have him here. Um, he was previously a postdoc and then a research assistant professor at Vanderbilt. Um, I am told that he nearly dropped out of graduate school in the second year. Um, I think for all the graduate students in here, uh, that might be worth taking note of. He apparently rebounded from this pretty well um, and joined us in 2012 uh, as an assistant and then associate professor in the Molecular and Systems Biology uh, Department. Um, broadly, he's interested and his, his research program is interested in uh, the role of estrogen receptors in breast cancer and uh, therapies uh, targeting uh, these estrogen receptors within breast cancer. He's done uh, very well. Uh, his lab has done very well uh, since being here, and I'd like to note uh, a couple of his contributions both in science but also to the, to the greater community and cancer center. Um, he's the scientific director of our comprehensive breast program at the Cancer Center. Uh, he is co-director of our molecular tumor board, and he is co-director of our cancer biology and therapeutics, therapeutics research program. So uh, a lot of contributions there uh, to, the, to the greater community, and we're thankful for that. One of the things that he's uh, really noted for around here, especially for someone on the PhD research end of things, is a high involvement in our uh, clinical programs. He has uh, somewhere on the order of uh, 10 uh, st clinical studies ongoing uh, and, and more that are coming down the tube. So that's been uh, a great involvement that really helps to bridge uh, the basic research and the clinical research uh, here at the Cancer Center. He's been very productive. Uh, he's got somewhere uh, north of 40 publications, uh, most of them dealing with breast cancer. Uh, and he's been very successful in gaining research support for this, being NIH-funded and previously funded also through the American Cancer Society, uh, Mary Kay Foundation, and, and the V Foundation. So uh, with that, um, thank you for your participation, and uh, we look forward to this. Thank you, Brad. <clears throat> Can you hear me? Yes. Super. So I wanted to share an update on this story, which I realized I presented in Grand Rounds a little over almost exactly two years ago uh, when it was a very early project. So it's an interesting exercise for me to now see in two years where we get. Um, this also was Riley Hampshire's PhD project, which she defended a few months ago. I'll present an expanded version of that. Um, as Brent said, I don't have any I have financial interest with it. We have a clinical trial funded by Takeda, actually two trials. They have nothing to do with um, I'll discuss off-label use of metformin and possibly vernolazine, and unfortunately no one's paying me to give this talk. <laughs> so 
in our lab, we focus primarily on ER-positive heterogeneous breast cancer, which ER being estrogen receptor alpha, that makes up two-thirds of cases. There are about 900,000 new cases of this per year worldwide, <clears throat> and about half of them, about half of breast cancer-related deaths, are due to this subtype. I prefer to think of how the disease is managed clinically when we're trying to develop models and study it. So patients in the first world typically, because we have screening, show up to the clinic with stage one to three breast cancer, which means there are no distant metastases that we know of. Um, in the ER positive or negative case, they'll be treated with surgery. They may or may, not, may or may not get chemo or radiation adjuvantly. The chemo can be before or after surgery. And we call those people disease-free clinically, meaning there's no evidence of disease, NED. And I actually inserted this little occult uh, disease there because we know about one-third of patients have, uh, one-third of patients are going to recur and about one-third of them have clinically detectable occult disease. <coughs> detectable occult disease, not clinically detectable. They then get an anti-estrogen for five to 10 years we know tamoxifen is the most, common, most popular one from years ago. Aromatase inhibitors are more popular now for postmenopausal patients. They're on um, anti-estrogens for five to 10 years. One third of those will recur with either locally recurrent advance or distant metastatic disease. <coughs> so this is the period that we're referring to as clinical dormancy. And this is, this is sort of our term. Um, our definition of clinical dormancy is this phase. It's not to say that this is dormancy broadly or biological dormancy. They're, this is a nebulous concept, and there are going to be different opinions in the field. After a patient recurs with locally uh, advanced or metastatic disease, they're going to be treated usually with an anti-estrogen again, either a different one or even the same one if they've been off therapy for a while, with or without a CDK4-6 inhibitor or an mTOR inhibitor. There'll be response or stable disease followed by progression, treated usually again with a different anti-estrogen, eventually moving on to chemo, and in almost all cases, this is a fatal disease. So treating, so studying the clinical dormant, clinically dormant phase and coming up with a better therapy to intervene early on in the adjuvant setting should prevent the appearance of metastatic disease and therefore result in a higher cure or non-recurrence rate. <coughs> So this is actually a failed experiment, uh, which we salvaged and it became an entire project. Uh, what had happened was when you put MCO7 cells into a mouse, either subcutaneously or in the memory fat pad or orthotopically, um, the mice have low levels of estrogens endogenously. You have to add extra estradiol or extra estrogen to make the tumor grow. Usually we do that by putting a pellet subcutaneously that contains estradiol into the mouse, tumors grow. If you put in estradiol with the MCS7 cells subcutaneously, tumors will grow, fine. They appear in a couple weeks. But if you don't, nothing happens. And this is a different project for which I asked my postdoc after 10 weeks, Lloyd at the time, Lloyd Dillon, after about 10 weeks, there was nothing happening in these mice. Let's put in estrogen pellets now and see if tumors grow. And they did. Whereas if you don't put in pellets, they didn't grow. So great. Um, so what that means is, over those 10 weeks, those MCS7 cells just sat there. They didn't die, or at least not all of them died, and they still remained estrogen-responsive and estrogen-inducible. Um, so Riley then 
developed this into an entire project based on what Boy had found and also Kevin Shee had helped at the time. So she broke this out into four phases, where in phase one, you're going to, it's the start of the experiment, we're going to take an overectomized mouse, overectomy, which will help ensure that the estrogens are as low as possible in the mouse. Um, put the ER positive breast cancer cells in the mouse with an estrogen pellet, with the phase shown in, not very bright, shown in pink, where we're putting estradiol in and it makes tumors grow. At step two, which is time point zero in this model, in this diagram, we remove the estradiol pellet and tumors will regress and go away. <coughs> but we engineer the cells to explicitly cipherase so that we can follow them and get relative numbers of cells that are still there by doing bioluminescence imaging. And after two to three months of estrogen deprivation, the bioluminescence signal starts to stabilize, and we consider that our, clinic, our model clinical dormancy, our dormant population. Um, whether those cells are slowly proliferating and dying or whether the population is completely static, the total number of tumor cells doesn't seem to change much after two months. And Riley went out uh, to over a year in some mice, and it's a pretty stable population, so we can study at that point. That also meant that every experiment that Riley ever did took at least four months uh, because we have to get them to be in a dormant state before we can start studying them. So we developed it. This is based on MCS7 cells on the right. We did this with several models, uh, HCI-017 being a PDX model, the other ones being ER-positive breast cancer cell lines. When you withdraw estradiol, the tumors progress to completion, and when we call them tumor-free when they're no longer palpable, which clinically would be considered disease-free. Um, but we can still image residual cells by uh, their luciferase. So one of the first experiments we did was nanostring on MCS7 tumors at baseline, which is on estradiol, or after three days or 82 days of estrogen withdrawal. 82 days we picked this in that time frame of being clinically dormant. Three days we picked because we wanted to see what the, acute, the effects of acute estrogen withdrawal were going to be. Because if you compare baseline to 82 days, we're going to see what is different about dormant tumors, but we're also going to see what is induced by estrogen withdrawal, and we wanted to be able to subtract that variable out. So, <clears throat> look at genes that are changed after three days versus baseline versus those in dormant tumors versus baseline, and this is only nanostrings, so there's only 770 genes, not a lot, um, but this is what we see changed, and over here in this group, we're, we're interested in what is unique about dormant tumors that is not found when you have just have acute estrogen withdrawal, and we found AMPK alpha-2 was upregulated of being AMP-activated protein, AMP-activated protein kinase alpha-2, which is one of the catalytic subunits. Um, there were lots of other interesting hits that came up out of this, but AMPK immediately caught our attention because we'll get into why AMPK is clinically hot to be studying. This is just another word to represent that data, genes that change at day three versus day 82, and AMPK alpha-2 is out here and we are interested in the genes that are out in this arm that were altered only in dormant tumors, but not at day three. <coughs> so what is AMPK? AMPK is the center of the universe for cellular metabolism. It controls virtually everything, and it uh, touches on all the pathways. Generally speaking, it's induced, and I'm not going to go through every pathway with the AMPK, but it's induced when there is um, energetic stress in a cell, 
high AMP to ATP ratio will induce AMPK activation. There are also some stress kinases that feed into AMPK. AMPK's main job is to tell the cell to produce more energy by increasing catabolism and decreasing anabolism. So we usually think of it as it can induce autophagy, a way for the cells to get more energy. It can also inhibit mTOR or TORC1 to suppress protein synthesis to try to conserve ADP. So it's induced generally when cells are stressed. What we focus mainly on in this talk is its induction of beta-oxidation of fatty acids. Uh, so we had also done, uh, we then, we did nanostring first because it was cheaper to do, to get an idea of what was changing. Later on in the project, we opted to go for RNA-seq on two different models. Again, MCA7 and also HCC1428. Tumors however, set up for the 06 or 90 days of estrogen withdrawal. So this is a new set of mice. It's actually, I think we did this in NSGs, whereas the prior experiment was done in nude mice. And looked at what changes. AMPK alpha-2 was upregulated in the dormant tumors in both models, uh, but not, it is not um, affected by acute estrogen withdrawal. Um, and again, these are some of the major pathways, right, these are some of the major pathways that AMPK regulates. We ended up focusing on ACC uh, as a driver of fatty acid oxidation. We did look at autophagy, and we did look at mTOR signaling, and there were not consistent patterns of change. So it wasn't like we were just seeing autophagy-induced dormant tumors. mTOR is actually hyperactivated for reasons we don't understand. Um, and we did see uh, induction of mitochondrial biogenesis, which I'll get to. So from our RNA-seq, because it's whole genome, we're able to do more whole genome exercises with it. So we did gene set variant analysis, or Jason actually did that, which is similar to gene set enrichment analysis. And we find that some of the top hits are AMPK regulated pathways and fatty acid oxidation in both models. <clears throat> uh, we did immunostaining for AMPK alpha 2 or phospho ACC, which is a direct readout of AMPK uh, kinase activity, and found that it was induced in dormant tumors compared to baseline, which is shown, quantified over here and down here. Okay, so we submitted this paper um, to a journal in. November. And one of the reviewers' big comments is, well, does this happen in human tumors? Did they have increased AMPK activity, increased fatty acid oxidation? Um, we can only answer that in so many ways. Uh, it's actually really, really hard to measure that fatty acid oxidation. The assays are not great, so we can't easily measure it in humans. We'll get to the problems with that. Um, we can't measure we can't measure AMPK activity that easily. We can measure phospho substrates if we believe that the phosphorus sites are not affected. Um, something that might be more robust, although it's going to be built in with caveats, is to look at gene expression signatures, which my lab has a history of doing, so we can do it pretty easily. The connectivity map, which is now huge, has gene expression profiles induced by about 28,000 perturbogens, chemicals, drugs, and 14 of the major cancer cell lines. So I went to connectivity map, and I took this gene expression signatures that were induced by edomoxia, which is a fatty acid oxidation inhibitor, and pulled those signatures from a few different um, iterations, and we ended up with a signature of 992 genes that was based on MCS7 cells. And I went to patient tumors and generated a score of fatty acid oxidation based on the opposite of edomoxia um, in those tumors. 
And I also do subtraction for genes involved in cell cycle and cell proliferation and such, which actually were not that many genes, surprisingly. So there are publicly available human data, human tumor data sets with gene, gene expression data um, mm -hmm. on the gene expression on the bus for patients that were treated pre-surgically with anti-estrogens. So this data set, they were early stage or breast cancer treated with the aromatase inhibitor vetrazole, which is going to cause estrogen withdrawal in patients for um, up to 13 weeks. So they have baseline and 13 weeks, and they were done by uh, microarray. Another data set, they treated patients with a different anti-estrogen, full vestrant, for four weeks. And again, they have microarrays done at zero and four weeks. So I generated a score for each patient's tumor and part of them, and basically the lower the score, the more it looks like etomoxia, the more it looks like fatty acid oxidation inhibition. Therefore, the, more, the higher the score in this, in this uh, graphic, the more fatty acid oxidation driven the tumor should be. And what we see is that compared to baseline, after they've been on anti-estrogen for several weeks, the tumors have a higher score, a gene signature indicative of fatty acid oxidation. And the averages are plotted with the bed bars. There's also an interesting data set that I've been waiting several years for them to publish, and a fan came out, where they were doing this very, very long neoadjuvant or pre-surgical letrozole um, study with the aromatase inhibitor, where it wasn't even after a few weeks that they were going to do surgery. That wasn't planned. The plan was to put these patients on and leave them on for many months to years to see if they could control their disease just with this drug. They don't, these patients may not need surgery. Of course, eventually they all end up going to surgery um, for the sake of just getting tissue at the end. So event, in the beginning, there were some patients that were just non-responders. They were taken off study immediately and went to surgery. There were some who had stable disease, which is, yeah, sorry for the yellowing. Um, stable disease, and they stayed on study for a while, and eventually if the tumor grew, non-responsive, went to surgery. Then there were those that responded, and that's the ones that um, I, I picked up for study here. Their tumor shrank. I think it was at least 40% regression in three months, and they either stayed on or eventually the tumor became resistant and then went to surgery. So... Um, these are called acquired resistant tumors where they responded, then they eventually grew, and these are called dormant tumors in this manuscript. <laughs> and separating out those two from this data set, uh, we're, we're looking at gene expression profiles at baseline and at surgery. So this could be um, six months to two years, six months up to three years. Um, after being on a long term blood treatment, the responsive tumors or the dormant tumors, rather, have increased signature of fatty acid oxidation. Those that had acquired resistance, it was not significantly different. <clears throat> okay, so back to our mice. In blue are MCF7 tumors, in red or pink are 1428 tumors, and there are increased numbers of mitochondria and mitochondrial length when Riley had performed aminofluorescence for mitochondria, and also from the RNA-seq data, which it never occurred to me until she found it, was mitochondrial RNAs are found in the RNA-seq data, and there were increased mitochondrial RNAs um, in the dormant tumors at the 90 days, but not at, uh, compared to day zero, and they were not changed at day six. So these dormant tumors are operated with new mitochondria. This is a quick schematic of how beta oxidation happens and where some of the drugs that we'll talk about can intervene. 
Um, the key for this slide is CPT-1, or we studied CPT-1 alpha, which is a rate-limiting transporter for the import of long-chain fatty acids into the mitochondria. Yeah, import in the mitochondria as a rate-limiting step in the beta-oxidation pathway. Beta-oxidation being um, the way that cells will break down fatty acids to generate ATP. So in the dormant tumors, day 90 versus zero, there's increased CP21-alpha levels when we did immunostaining, and that's quantified over here. So statistically different. We only had one tumor left over here because we burned all the material because dormant tumors are really small. Right, we then went on to look at mitochondrial respiration. Um, the, one of the standard seahorse assays, um, based on reading the oxygen consumption rate over time, if we add in these mitochondrial inhibitors and we, we can basically subtract the rate at different points, we can get these metrics. Um, we can get the basal respiration oxygen consumption rate, the rate of ATP reduction or ATP length respiration. And she also looked at spare capacity or reserve capacity. And that, that's what the plot ends up looking like. Uh, what she was comparing were MCS7 cells that were hormone-deprived for 5, 10, or 15 days. And over a longer time on hormone withdrawal or estrogen withdrawal, they do have increased um, oxidative respiration or mitochondrial respiration, which matches their increased mitochondrial content. Uh, this is more of the same after hormone withdrawal, either being on estrogen or hormone deprived for 60 days, there is, um, again, increased mitochondria and increased mitochondrial protein over time in here shown as two different cell lines. To try to investigate whether AMPK was driving this increased oxidative respiration, uh, we did SHRNA to knock down AMPK. This is dicey, and we're still working on it in a revised manuscript, but AMPK alpha, there's AMPK alpha-1 and alpha-2 as catalytic subunits. If you knock one down, the other one goes up. So we found we can't just knock down alpha-2. We need to knock down both to really knock out AMPK activity. Cells don't like it when you knock out AMPK activity. Um, they need it to sort of real statically self-regulate their metabolism. Um, so we generated a constitutive knockdown of alpha-1 and induced with knockdown of alpha-2. And we showed that from 0 to 15 days, without any, without, with, yeah, without any knockdown, there is increased um, oxygen consumption. When we do a dual knockdown of A and BK, there is not that same increased oxygen consumption from day 0 to 15. Uh, we also use etamoxir as a tool compound, which is a fatty acid oxidation inhibitor. It is the most specific CBT1 transporter inhibitor that we that we have. Um, it may, I think it entered uh, phase one or two clinical trials. It was toxic and shelved, so uh, not great for in vivo work, but in vitro works great. Uh, we're showing that over time on hormone deprivation, there is an increase in oxygen consumption rate, but etamoxir blocks out from happening. Um, suggesting that the increased cellular respiration is due at least in part to beta oxidation and inhibiting CBD1 blocks that from happening. <clears throat> Looking further at uh, how AMPK may be involved in this, we grew cells either under control conditions, meaning in DMEM 10% FPS. If you do a dual knockout 
with the SI RNA of AVK alpha one and two, you don't really affect their growth. They don't they don't care so much if they're growing happily into percent FBS. If you take away their hormones and you knock at AMPK, it has a growth suppressive effect or induces death. We didn't measure separate for proliferation death there, just number of cells left after a week or so. Um, SIRNA is, you know, we try to do genetic knockouts and also use compounds or molecules to um, pharmacologically suppress pathways. Um, Zorosomorphin is not great. It's fairly dirty in the field. Um, also called compound C, one of its targets is AMPK, so it's an AMPK inhibitor. <coughs> They're never going to be great AMPK inhibitors developed because theoretically they would cause cancer because they would promote uh, mTOR activation, promote growth, and be cancer predisposing. So we don't have great AMPK inhibitors. We have AMPK activators. Uh, Thorzomorphin, as a whole compound, is an AMPK inhibitor. Um, and when you grow set, when you treat cells with hormone depleted medium and set relative <coughs> growth at one, if you treat them with dorsomorphin for several weeks, you get greatly suppressed growth indoor death. Um, suggesting AMPK signaling is important for the survival of cells or the growth of cells without hormones there. We did a mouse experiment where we induced MCF7 tumors on estrogen, then withdrew estrogen for 90 days and then treated with drug. So we're inducing dormant tumors in mice and then seeing if drug will have an effect. And we use this uh, paradigm in a couple of experiments. If this were a patient, you can think of this as a patient who had surgery, there's no evidence of disease, and they were treated with an aromatase inhibitor for 90 days and then randomized to drug treatment. And this experiment for 25 days. So we treated the mice with dorsomorphin, and uh, within the first, at the first time point, we see a decrease in the number of residual cancer cells that's inferred from the luciferase imaging. Um, and that, was that decrease in cancer cell, cancer cell burden was stable even after we stopped treating at 25 days. Took another reading at 40, 42 days, and the number of cancer cells had not then bounced back and increased. Uh, that Actually, that last measurement is important because it all means that your drug was not affecting luciferase activity itself, which there are drugs that will do that because luciferase is in a heavily ATP-dependent enzyme. <clears throat> we also looked at phospho-ICC in the dormant tumors as a readout of whether we are affecting AMPK activity. And of the tum tumors from mice treated with dorsomorphin, after a single dose, 24 hours later, we took tumors out and there was decreased phospho-ICC, suggesting that dorsomorphin treatment did actually inhibit uh, AMPK. So we're interested in, can we look at fatty acid oxidation inhibitors? And there are some drugs that are, have either been tested clinically or are approved. Uh, Peraxoline sounds good, it's a CBT1 inhibitor, so it will block the import of fatty acids into mitochondria, and therefore block the source of it oxidation. Heat moxide, I mentioned, has been shelved after clinical trials, but is very specific <coughs> for CBT1. Trimetazidine, um, inhibits a different part of the pathway, but it ends up blocking oxidation of fatty acids. And renolazine, uh, the mechanism, the clinical mechanism is still a little unclear. It, can, it is a partial bit oxidation inhibitor. It also inhibits electron transport chain. And its main mechanism for what I'll talk about is that it inhibits voltage-gated sodium channels. So 
Granola seed is the only one that's approved, FDA approved, so approved in the U.S. Uh, for the treatment of angina, and these other drugs are also used for angina uh, elsewhere in the world. <clears throat> the main mechanism is thought to work by to treat angina, and heart pain, um, chest pain due to heart, is that it's inhibiting uh, voltage-gated sodium channels, and it's it's sort of causing a current correction, and that's why they think it works. But <clears throat> it has been shown that renalazine has uh, is able to inhibit fatty acid beta oxidation and that can't be ruled out as part of its mechanism of anti-angenal action because heart um, is one of the tissues that is high, highly engages fatty acid beta oxidation um, as, a, as a fuel source. So uh, if we were going to try to translate any of this here, renalazine is the easiest way to go to target fatty acid oxidation because FDA approved already. So we could use an off-label or an equivalent study. Um, so we took mice with MCF7 tumors. Here's our paradigm again, where we induce dormant tumors after 90 days of estrogen withdrawal, and then treat the mice plus or minus renalazine. Again, this would be a patient who is treated with an aromatase inhibitor for three months with no evidence of disease. <coughs> Sorry. And then randomized to um, treatment with the aromatase inhibitor plus or minus renalazine. And we see that um, after a couple of doses, we see a decrease in the bioluminescence signal on renalazine. And after we stopped treating, there was a little rebound in this group, this logarithmic scale, um, no rebound in this group. Um, so it's just that overall, uh, I, I would venture to say that renalazine was inducing death of dormant tumor cells. We didn't measure death because we'd have to put a lot of mice into this and uh, sack mice at early time points. But... I'd say this is death because the signal is dropping so fast that it can't simply uh, be explained by reduced proliferation, given that there really is minimal cell proliferation going on in the <clears throat> tumors. Okay, so dormant cells have upregulated AMPK activity. <clears throat> and metformin is an anti-diabetes drug that either directly or ind indirectly activates AMPK. Um, I'm not going to go into metformin's mechanism because it's still debated. It can inhibit AMPK directly. It can also inhibit mitochondrial complex 1, decreasing ATP, increasing AMP to ATP ratio, and therefore activating AMPK indirectly. So question that came up, and part of the this is out of order, but part of the reason we don't buy the AMPK in the first place was, does, does this mean that metformin will promote the survival of dormant cancer cells? because the dormant cells have increased AMPK? And or does metformin keep the cancer cells in a dormant state and suppress tumor outgrowth? So dormant tumor cells have increased AMPK. Does that help them stay alive, but also prevent them from going out? <coughs> and metformin is so widely used that um, this could be an um, interesting <coughs> question. So metformin, um, overall, is associated with improved outcome in, can, in diabetic cancer patients. And meta-analyses such as these are what led to its, its widespread use in clinical trials. So if you're diabetic and you're on metformin, mm -hmm. here is your recurrence, uh, recurrence? Yeah, recurrence through saliva curve. If you are non-diabetic, it's the next out of wind down. <coughs> 
If you are diabetic and on something else or insulin, you're down here. Therefore, if you're diabetic and on metformin, type 2 diabetes, you do better. The key word there is you're diabetic. We have no idea what it does in non-diabetic patients. <coughs> uh, the same is true when they did a subset analysis for breast cancer patients. So I put this up here just as a sampling of the 200 or so clinical trials that have been launched in the last couple of years, testing metformin as an anti-cancer agent in non-diabetic patients. Okay, so metformin is cheap. It's considered fairly benign, good side effect profile, except for the 10% diarrhea, <laughs> um, and may have anti-cancer effects that have been seen preclinically and epidemiologically, it looks pretty good. So they, a lot of people figure, why not try it? Um, actually, wow, it's reckless. I also threw this up here because as I was browsing for AMP activation last night, um, I found that there are, we'll call them off-label AMPK activators or AMPK boosters that are for sale that uh, appear to be unregulated. Um, they, they mention veg a lot. So I assume these are for vegetarians or vegans and they're meant to be APK activators. They are not metformin, they are something else. So uh, apparently you don't, they're used for di uh, blood sugar control as well. So apparently there are other ways to do this besides using drugs that we know about, if you're interested in buying them. Um, so we did the experiment that everyone has done, where we implanted MCF7 cells in the mice with estradiol and tumors grow, which is in blue. And if we put the mice on metformin, tumors grow slower. And that's a lot of the preclinical evidence for metformin having anti-cancer effects. So metformin does suppress the growth of tumors under growth conditions. Those are key words. We took those tumors out, and the metformin treatment does increase fossil ACC, so it is activating AMPK directly or indirectly. It's also inducing cell cycle rest. You see increased P21 levels. <clears throat> In vitro, we see the same effects where cells in the presence of medium with estradiol grow fine. If you have metformin there, they don't grow as well. So under growth conditions, metformin has growth suppressive effects. Then we did the experiment without hormone. So this is um, charcoal strip serum, so hormone depleted medium. If you have metformin there, you get more cells. So therefore, it's either increasing growth, proliferation, or decreasing death. <coughs> If we knock down AMPK alpha-1 and 2 with siRNA, we can mitigate the, the protective effects of metformin. Uh, we did the mouse experiment where we uh, induced estrogen-driven estrogen MCA7 tumors and then withdrew estradiol from the mice and randomized them to plus or minus metformin at the same time. So if these are humans, these people came off of surgery, and they have no evidence of disease. Now they're being treated with an aromatase inhibitor plus or minus metformin as adjuvant therapy. And we see that metformin slowed um, tumor regression. I put, it up, put this up as percent tumor-free, but if I show you tumor volume, it looks the same, um, where metformin is preventing the regression of tumors on estrogen withdrawal. <coughs> the same was seen with other models. <coughs> And we looked at phospho CC again to show that metformin is actually inducing um, AMPK activity and therefore phosphorylation of ACC. <coughs> <coughs> Pardon. 
to try to link APK and metformin to fatty acid oxidation, we took the cells in vitro and treated them with either in hormone depleting medium with either metformin or etomoxir. Metformin rescues growth, but etomoxir mitigates that. So metformin's protective effect may indirect, this is not direct evidence, but may require fatty acid oxidation. <clears throat> We also had an orphan, orphan experiment where we were looking at dietary effects a couple of years ago that actually ended up fitting into this fairly well, um, which I'll show in a minute to do with mice. But we wanted to see if we, can we simply feed fat? In other words, we give metformin, we activate EPK, and it's protective, but what if we just get them fat? If they're using fatty acid oxidation, we should just be able to give them an increased fuel source, and that should have the same effect. And it did. So these are hormone-depleted MCO7 cells. They grow incredibly slowly without hormone. If you add oleic acid, just as a fuel source, they grow better. Um, something I, I think is interesting, and I'm not sure we're going to follow up on, um, but we may follow up on, because I always think a supply and demand issue is interesting, is when we gave them increased oleic acid, we see increased phospho-ACC, which means increased APK activity. I don't understand why that's happening. We're giving them increased fuel, increased fat, but they're activating the pathway way upstream to therefore make use of that fuel source. Uh, we also see increased expression PGC with alpha, transcription factor in this pathway, which will drive, among other things, mitochondrial biogenesis genes. Um, so we're feeding them more fat, and they're actually operating in pathways they need to utilize it. We don't know how that's happening. Um, another seahorse assay to look at oxygen consumption. We see that... Yep, so if we add fat, which is in the stripe bars, um, we can increase oxygen consumption rate, but by day 15 of hormone withdrawal, we can no longer increase it, and our interpretation of that is that the oxygen consumption is already saturated because they're hormone deprived, they're already upregulated the pathways, so when you add more oleic acid, more fat, you can't make them make use of it any faster than they already are. The mouse experiment, um, we took mice, we adapted them for two to three weeks to either a high-fat or low-fat diet and grew NCS7 tumors on estradiol during the same time. We then withdraw the estrogen pellet. I'm sorry, I didn't put the schematic up. And we then on a high-fat or low-fat diet. And it was actually kind of disturbing that the mice on a high-fat diet, the majority of the tumors um, didn't completely regress, and some of them only regressed partially, and they there was still a palpable tumor mass there if the mice was on a high-fat diet, even though the estrogen was taken away. This is the equivalent of a patient, again, with no evidence of disease on aromatase inhibitor being treated with a high-fat or low-fat diet. And those are the dietary stats over here for dietary gurus. Um, with the CBT1 alpha levels and... Dormant tumor, on the low-fat diet, dormant tumors at day 90 have higher CBT1 alpha levels and also higher fossil ACC levels. But if they've been on a high-fat diet, it is the same as baseline. And our interpretation of that is because here, baseline, they've actually already actually been on a high-fat diet for a couple of weeks. So any adaptation that would have happened has already happened. <laughs> yep. So what we conclude from all of that is that the clinically dormant ER-positive breast cancer cells survive extended periods of estrogen deprivation. They, have, they show AMPK upregulation and activation, and they engage AMPK and fatty acid oxidation to survive estrogen withdrawal. Uh, 
testing benign or safe drugs in cancer clinical trials without considering the disease setting in which you're testing them could be harmful. The example we show is metformin. It can have cancer-sustaining effects in certain conditions, in this case, uh, dormant cells that are trying to resist uh, anti-estrogen, and that could lead earlier, earlier tumor recurrence in patients. We don't have trial results on recurrence with metformin because those trials have only been watched over the last couple of years, but it's going to take a while to get results on, results on those, especially for breast cancer, uh, because the recurrence happens late. And we found that dormant ER positive breast cancer cells in tumors are sensitive to inhibitors of fatty acid oxidation, so that may be a potential therapeutic strategy to use a combination with an antiestrogen. So I'll talk for a few minutes about how to translate this, um, which has actually been conceptually difficult to figure out how to best test this. We'll talk about why. So we want to study this phase, the clinical drama phase. That's where we think, that's where we think the, the biggest impact will be if you can have a better adjuvant therapy and prevent recurrence. That's really hard to study. Um, so how do we test whether fatty acid oxidation inhibitors affect dormant ER positive breast cancer cells, and in who do we study it, and what is our endpoint? So the ideal study is right here. We're going to treat disease-free patients with adjuvant therapy and book for recurrence-free survival. Recurrence is the endpoint. It'll take five to ten years and cost several million dollars and require 1 to 200 patients for a randomized trial. We can't do that. <clears throat> we could make the argument, which is not wrong, but there may be um, pre-existing data that I've yet to find, where we should test the safety of the antiestrogen and the fatty acid oxidation inhibitor in combination. I say there may already be data because if we're using, for example, vernolazine, which is FDA-approved for angina, there may already be breast cancer patients out there who have been on an antiestrogen with vernolazine, and that safety can be proven um, historically, but I haven't found that. If we do that study, where it's a true safety study, we should do it in a metastatic setting with a three-by-three design. So then how do we assess efficacy of this combination if we think we're targeting dormant cells? We never said we're targeting growing tumors. We just said we're targeting dormant cells. Um, so do we look at disseminated tumor cells that are left in the bone marrow as a measure of residual disease? Do we look at circulating tumor cells in blood? Do we measure time to disease progression? Is that relevant? Time to development of a new lesion? And also, how do we assess drug target engagement? How do we show we're inhibiting fatty acid oxidation? <clears throat> so from the patients with no evidence of disease, years ago they did bone marrow aspirates, and they find that there are residual disseminated tumor cells in the bone marrow. Um, we, don't, we know that they're there, and it's theorized that they eventually give rise to recurrence, but I can't tell you that that exact cell give rise, gives rise to recurrent disease. So is it right to say that we can clear the dormant cells out of bone marrow, and that's our main goal? These are philosophical questions we have to deal with. Um, but of those patients with no evidence of disease, about one-third of them, this is a meta-analysis, about one-third of them have bone marrow positive disseminated tumor cells, which means we can't, if we were to even study this population, we can't look at everybody because two-thirds of them don't have anything to study a baseline. Of those who are bone marrow positive, um, they do have uh, poor outcome, either distant disease-free survival or best cancer specific survival. So having disseminated tumor cells in bone marrow is a bad prognostic <coughs> indicator. 
Um, you could use that as a baseline metric and say if you have bone marrow positive disease at baseline, you're eligible for the study, but it means two-thirds of our patients are going to be screen fails, so that's not good either. Also, the concept that I keep having coming up against is what patient is going to enroll in a study that requires multiple bone marrow aspirates? So, so the con study concept that um, I've been working through over the last couple of months and it's still not quite polished, but I'll share it, is to do a study in advanced metastatic ear positive breast cancer with this drug combination with the primary goal being to demonstrate safety. Because I don't think we, even though there might be historical um, evidence that these drugs have been used in combination, it's never been formally <coughs> tested and looked at the AE profile. So do a proper safety study of the combination and then I should primary endpoint. Secondary endpoint is to uh, look at a biomarker of fatty acid oxidation in tumor and adipose tissue. We'll talk about that in a second. Measure circuit in tumor cells and blood. Time to disease progression is a given. Time to appearance of a new lesion would be nice, but I don't know if they're going to stay on study after they've regressed. Um, and also look at bone marrow disseminated tumor cell counts. I have an asterisk there because it would be nice to get bone marrow aspirates at two different time points, but we'd have to make it optional to make the study viable or else it won't enroll. Uh, the population is going to be patients with local recurrent or advanced breast cancer who had prior anti-estrogen therapy. It doesn't matter what mine, they just need advanced disease. They would have blood and a tumor and adipose tissue biopsy at baseline, and then again after um, one week, I think a week would be long enough to see a change in fatty acid oxidation if your drug is working. Blood taken monthly, uh, day one of every cycle, um, and the combination of letrozole and nolazine throughout. So I have a hashtag here near, near biomarker because we don't have one yet. It seems like it's really hard to study. Um, the, the most accurate way to study fatty acid oxidation in action, because it is a process, is to use radio-labeled substrates like treated palmitate or C14 labeled palmitate, and that has been done in humans, but I think it's a bit much to put that into this clinical trial. Also, it occurred to me that if I put tridated palmitate into patients, uh, I can measure a baseline level of fatty acid oxidation by looking at tridated water in their tumors or in the tissues, but I have no way to know if it washed out before the next dose, before I want to do a biopsy again in a week. So using radio-labeled substrates is not the best idea. We can take tumor biopsies, tissue biopsies, and treat them ex vivo in culture to look at fatty acid oxidation in a dish, but I really don't want to do that as a readout for this assay to show if the drug is hitting the tumor or not. A better way, which um, Ali had worked on in the lab during her rotation, was to try to identify tissue biomarkers of fatty acid oxidation. She was looking at perivipin IHC as a way to look at uh, fatty acid um, vacuole accumulation within cells where fatty acid oxidation is inhibited, which we don't know if that's going to be a thing, but moving there. But the easiest biomarker is going to be some sort of IAC-type biomarker. As a backup, we could go to doing the gene expression signature of fatty acid oxidation. I don't want to go there, but that is another option. So again, right, we did the vast majority of the work for this study. Um, Jason helped with analysis of the RNA-seq data. Nicole is now working with me on trying to finish up a few experiments to resubmit this manuscript. Um, Ali 
during her rotation again, had worked on trying to develop a fatty acid oxidation biomarker. Um, collaborators at Dartmouth who have helped with this project and others over the years. Uh, we use a ton of shared resources and core facilities for this. Um, and I'm really grateful to the Mary Kay Foundation because they, this was started, when this project started as looking at critical dormancy, you know, a lot of funding agencies thought, eh, is that going to work or what are they looking at? But Mary Kay was generous enough to provide a small a pilot grant over two years for us to do what I would consider to be a pretty exploratory analyses um, that ended up going somewhere. And um, more recently, Foundation for Women's Wellness has funded some larger preclinical studies for us to, to look at fatty acid oxidation inhibitors in mouse models um, and also look at the molecular endpoints from those studies. Um, Jason has been supportive for the Burroughs Welcome. Uh, we fed help from the Prouty and Aurora Scott Cancer Center for these studies, and of course, um, NCI funding. And I'd be happy to take questions. I think it's just better. I think a lot of it has to do with better control insulin. Everyone wants to ignore the fact that insulin is a growth factor, and it actually is probably inducing growth of tumors, and you have insulin control when you're on metformin, right? So if you can control your insulin and control the glucose, that I think is the majority, the majority of the, explains the majority of the epidemiologic effects on cancer. It's because you're, you're on a better glucose control, so a fuel source for tumor cells, and better insulin control. Don't know. Yeah. That was great. I have two questions. One is just kind of technical, and that is um, how do you control for the effect of the AMPK inhibitors and other agents on, on your cifrase uh, marker? And the other one's kind of a philosophical question. You, you kind of alluded to a potential dichotomy between dormancy, the dormant state, and the ability to progress. And um, you showed that metformin. Um, Led to diminished regression on withdrawal. But are you are you sure that's associated with long-term progression? Like, do you have any opportunity to do survival studies in those mice? And is it possible that the failure to regress yeah. coexists co with the failure, you know, to no, progress? We didn't we didn't get that far. It's implied that if they're not going to regress as far, they are going to progress. I mean, it was. Not with the metformin, but it was especially true with the high-fat diet study, where those tumors were, they shrank halfway. And if we stop, if we, if we put estrogen back, of course, they're going to explode. But whether, so the tumors we're dealing with are estrogen-dependent, estrogen-driven tumors. So if they're on metformin and they don't regress as much, they're still estrogen-driven tumors. If, when you talk about outgrowth later on, Acquiring estrogen independence and nuclear resistance is different, is separate, and we didn't go that far to study that. I mean, we could. It would, it's, you know, are, are there data to support that cells in the dormant state potentially enforced by NPK activation are unable to progress in some in some way? Is it a trade-off? No, that's still the hype. That's still hypothetical. Yeah, no. now, yeah I, 
I can't prove it either way. Um, but that would be the hypothesis is that, it, right, it could be doing both, right? Right. And it's not to say that um, promoting the survival of dormant cells will cause occurrence. But A is correlated with B and B is correlated with C, so it's equal to C. Um, if there's increased residual disease, we think it would be increased risk for occurrence. But we don't know that. And the first question, metformin, luciferase. Um, I don't know if we did metformin and luciferase, but we did metformin with just tumor volume. Right. So, uh, calipers. Calipers. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, we've been, we thought that halfway through is that we need to make sure that we always check to see that drugs are not killing the luciferase signal itself. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Um, I have two questions. One, one um, regarding these fatty acids that are being <clears throat> oxidized, um, where do you think they come from? In cells? Or in a, yeah. Yeah, you and I have talked about this too. <laughs> uh, I don't know if they, how much of them would be coming from FBS. I don't know. I'm just wondering if you think they're being manufactured by the cells or being taken up. Right, this is the issue too. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if the cells are making them. I don't, I don't know if they're, they are auto, uh, using autophagy to salvage, to create them. I don't know. Do you have and ideas? You showed that the uh, high-fat diet uh, abrogated the regression of the tumors in vivo when you with, withdrew the estrogen pellet. Do you know if the high-fat diet produced a, a set of changes in gene expression that had a large overlap with the estrogen? We didn't do that. No. I know where that question's going, though, but no. <laughs> we didn't do that. Um, <clears throat> You would assume so, and based on what I've seen over the several years, I mean, at the very least, it's going to be driving an E2F program, right? E2F seems to be underlying all of this. CDK4-6, E2F um, is sort of almost required for getting rid of the necessity for ER in these tumors. So I'd wager to guess you will get that, but I don't know how estrogen-like it will be. There's always going to be some overlap, right, because of proliferation, but I, no, I don't know. Ellen? Do you have any thoughts on if this uh, AMPK phenotype is attributable to something like a clone that might be present in the primary setting that expands through the course of primary treatment, or is something that might be more quiet? Yeah, so that's Bianca's project, is trying to do lineage tracing and clonality experiments with this. Um, but when I talk to people who are already experts in the lineage tracing field, they think that the cells that survive and become dormant are just sporadic, it's just random. That hypothetically there is, um, within a population of cells, they're constantly going through phenotypes. Okay, A cells constantly going through a variety of phenotypes. And when you hit them with a drug or an insult at any given point, all the cells that are in a certain window will survive. This is a theory. You could call it a methylation, certain methylation pattern I've seen, a certain gene expression pattern, a certain metabolic pattern. But the, the theory is that a certain, if cells are in a certain window, those cells survive the insult, and it's random as to who survives at any given time. That's what they think, but we'll see. All right, let's okay. thank you.